This is Our American Stories, and we love to bring you the stories of our men and women in uniform. And now Jesse brings us the story of a nonprofit organization that puts guitars into the hands of war veterans. Thousands of war veterans are afflicted with PTSD. More soldiers have committed suicide since the Vietnam War than have died in actual battle. 22 veterans commit suicide every day, but a lot of them are finding some hope by playing the guitar. It's pretty simple. It's a program called Guitars for Vets, and it helps provide the guitars and free lessons. Check this out. Alpha Delta Echo. And E for Echo. We're a, a, a nonprofit. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. We were started 10 years ago, and we give guitar lessons to veterans. And we have found over the course of the 10 years that if you have problems, if, you, if you're having issues coping, or if, if life just becomes stressful, playing the guitar helps. Teachers donate their time, and uh, companies donate the uh, guitars and you know tuners and whatever, what have you, and. Uh, it's good therapy, if nothing else. It's good therapy for uh, post-traumatic stress, for therapy for anything that ails you. I don't know how many of you are musicians or how many of you play, but those that do will understand what I'm talking about when I say you can pick up a guitar and start playing, and the next thing you know, two hours is gone. And it's like, where did that go? Well, you're at peace for those two hours. You're having a good time, your mind quiets down, and things just become okay. And this is how it helps veterans with PTSD. It helps quiet them down and it helps them feel good about themselves and have a positive experience. Started coming to the VA. I come here for about 10 years and then I found out about the recreation program and that they offer guitar lessons. So I took them, I took the 10, 10 lessons. I think it was one of the best things I did. It's very good for me. The guitar helps you even if all you're doing is plucking the strings. It helps bring out whatever it is emotionally that you're trying to relax out of you. For me, I enjoy the company myself. It's a very good group of guys. I mean, I mean, these guys, these guys know what they're doing. Some of our better instructors have been minimalist guitar players. They may be the first position chords or whatever, but they're so good teaching people, and they they you, you, they can guide people through it, and they can make them feel like it's a success. The program is supposed to be a positive learning experience for everybody, so you don't want to make anybody feel like they failed or they're not keeping up with the program. It's just it's supposed to be enjoyable. It's supposed to be fun. And the, that's really what you need from an instructor is the ability to communicate that and be patient and empathetic with what the veterans are going through. It's a difficult thing for to find an instructor who has the flexibility to teach somebody who have who doesn't have any vision and figure out a way to show me how to play a guitar and I will say it was a uh, it was a good experience for both of us it made him a better teacher and it also made me a better student he was trying to teach me how to finger pick so I enjoyed it I could listen to him all day just finger pick on their music, so it's good. Are you a pretty good finger picker now? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not an easy thing to do. And 
but I still try. When I'm home, I try. It seems to me that the, the, the instrument tells you what type of music you're going to play. So I ended up, when I was taking piano lessons and playing piano, I would play love songs. I thought it would be the same that my guitar, I would learn how to play love songs on the guitar. But that's not true. The guitar said, you're going to play the blues. So I ended up playing the blues with the guitar. It just helps you calm down and de-stress. And it is, it's the best de-stressor I know of. And believe me, I, I, I use it at home all the time. But I would say you've got nothing to lose by doing it. It's, it's just, it's, it's a great program. And, and we know it helps. We know it can help you. So, you know. All non-judgmental. Come in and enjoy. Now, Guitars for Vets has fulfilled over 25,000 lessons and distributed over 2,500 guitars for free to military veterans. If you want to help out by donating $200, you can send one veteran through the program. That's guitarsforvets.org, and this is Our American Stories. And again, that's guitarsforvets.org. And by the way, this could just be something that you should think about for yourself or your family. Uh, an instrument, playing it, what it can do for you. That's why we spend so much time on music here on this show, and we spend a lot of time on vets. Jesse's really good at bringing disparate things that we care about together. I know another program that's uh, dealing with equestrians for vets up in Memphis. My little girl does that, and teaches vets how to ride, gets them at peace. And that's what we're all looking for in the end, is that inner peace. It's half of why we do this show here in Our American Stories. No screaming, no yelling. We've heard from so many of you uh, the thanks that you get for our tone, for the way we carry ourselves. Uh, And in this day and age, it's just hard to come across things that put you at peace. And so thanks again, Jesse, for finding this. Pick up a guitar one day. Go get an old used piano. Just start playing it. Just start strumming it. Just start tickling the keyboards. I like to do nothing better at my home. This is Our American Stories, Guitar for Vets. And by the way, this shows what so many people here do with their free time in this country. And as they give of their time, it's not always their money they can give, but my goodness, we can give of our time. Guitarsforvets.org, their story, these soldiers' stories who've been helped and healed by this ministry. And it is a ministry here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything. And right now we're going to take you into the world of the NHL hockey enforcer. Players whose job it is to deter and respond to a dirty or violent play by opposing players. Simply said, this is a story about fighting in hockey. Here's Greg Hengler. All right, this song's about hockey. Fighting in hockey is not just tolerated, it's promoted, and it has been since the beginning. When legendary brawler Eddie Shore and his Boston Bruins played the Rangers at Madison Square Garden in 1925, wanted dead or alive posters were plastered all over the streets of New York with the image of Shore, or old blood and guts as he was known on them. Shore was one of the toughest, meanest hombres ever to lace him up. Included on his list of career injuries are nearly 1,000 stitches, 14 broken noses, 12 broken collarbones, and 5 broken jaws, not to mention a broken back and hip. It was written in 1939 of Shore, for 20 years, man and boy, this evil fellow has developed the role of villain to such an extent that professional wrestlers gnash their teeth with envy. Not much has changed since the days of Eddie Shore's old-time hockey. Good evening and thanks for joining us. It is one of the most disgusting, brutal parts of NHL hockey. They are the most feared players in the NHL, whose role isn't scoring goals, it's knocking out the opponent. They're enforcers, scouted, drafted, and put on the ice for one thing, to fight. Let's drop the puck on this story with opening remarks from one of the greatest enforcers in NHL history, Boston native Chris Knuckles Nylon. You know, probably 18,999 people in the stands out of the 19,000 at one time or another, wherever they work, probably wanted to punch someone in the mouth. Whether it's their boss, someone they work with, somebody in competition with them. They never get to do it. But they like to see someone else do it. I still remember I was probably 12 or 13. We were at one of the stables and there was a couple of guys. It's like, oh, well, what are you going to do? You're going to be a vet like your dad? And, you know, being the 13-year-old still dreamer, I was like, no, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play in the NHL. It's all you think about your whole life is playing in the NHL. There was a point that I realized that my skill set that I had, it was only going to take me so far. Every league I went into, I was I was always a little bit slower than most players, and I'd establish myself some way to stick in the league. Then I finally looked in the mirror, and I was like, God, it's me. It's, it's my role. <laughs> so what is it about hockey that lends itself to fighting? And why does this not happen in equally violent sports such as football, rugby, and lacrosse? Here's hockey writer Stan Fischler. 
If you trace the roots of hockey, it was a game that really grew up in a frontier atmosphere where there wasn't much policing. So if you got a referee and he misses a call and somebody gets whacked in the head, you're not gonna dial 911 and wait for a cop to arrive. You're gonna whack the guy back. And when one whack leads to another whack, then the sticks drop and then the fight happens. Here's former Boston Bruin, Bob Sweeney. Bruins uh, in their heyday, the late 60s, early uh, 70s, really transformed hockey. Here's the Boston Herald's John Fitzgerald. Anybody ever put a glove on Bobby Orr? <laughs> wow. Orr and Here's hockey writer Ross Bernstein. As things would go on, of course, you saw the Broad Street Bullies, the Philadelphia Flyers, who won cups in the, a pair of cups in the early 70s by using fighting as a tactic. Teams would get what they called the Philly flu, where guys would come down with mystery ailments the night before they had to play the Flyers. Uh, coach, I don't feel good. I'm sick. Yeah, because you don't want to lose any teeth tomorrow when you got to go against Schultz and Moose DuPont and all those other thugs. They would carry a tough guy in every line, and they would beat the crap out of you in every scrum. We're going to have a Donnybrook right down below. The Broad Street Bullies created an arms race. Two years through the league, two championships, and everyone said, oh, this is how it's done? Everybody started finding the toughest dudes they could find, from Medicine Hat to Moncton to Moose Jaw, you name it. If you were tough and you could face one of those guys, you became a necessity. The enforcers became necessary. The enforcers became necessary not only for the team's success, but also for allowing the most skilled players to do their thing. Here's former NHL enforcer Lyndon Byers. Over the blue line. Maddox gets it again and brings it right back in for Buffalo. Here's Maddox walking in on goal. He scores! The NHL is a game. It's beautiful. It's elegant. But it can be nasty. And if you don't have people that hold other guys accountable, they're going to take liberties because they can. It's the only game in which you can't run out of bounds. And so there's a constant um, presence of people who would knock these finesse players off their pins. And you need guys to create room for those players. Nice move, another nice move! Oh, what a goal! Left point, over to Blake. Blake feeds it to Gretzky. Gretzky scores! What a shot by Wayne if there wasn't a Marty McSoley, there wouldn't have been a Wayne Gretzky. McSoley allowed Gretzky to be Gretzky. That's what a tough guy does. Here's Marty McSorley. There was one night Doug Evans was playing for Winnipeg, and he speared Gretz, and it was probably the third or fourth time he tried to take liberties with Wayne Gretzky. And what I did is I hung down in their end, and I cross-checked him very, very hard, right across the chest, down on the ice. And when he was on the ice, I leaned down, and I really hit him hard almost to the point where it's like a computer screen when the light goes up. Now, I got four games for it, but that can't happen on my watch. Here's Sports Illustrated's Michael Farber on what it's like being an enforcer. For a lot of fighters, there's a sinking feeling in their stomach because they know what faces them. It's like sitting in classroom all day, knowing when the bell rings at 3 o'clock. You've got to go fight toughest kid in the school on the playground and everyone's going to be watching. Here's the greatest enforcer of all hockey enforcers, 
Bob Probert. The night before, it was tough sleeping. The night before a game, and knowing uh, that there was a battle coming. Here's Todd Ewan. I was never scared about being in a fight. I was scared about losing a fight. You lose one fight, and then you lose two, and they lose confidence in you, my career was over. Here's Terry O'Reilly. You start out as a young, frisky kid challenging all these famous scrappers, and you blink, and there you are. You're 10, 12 years into the league. You've had your shoulder fixed two or three times. You've broken your hand a couple of times. There's a 20-year-old kid, and he's just foaming at the mouth when he looks at you. He wants to take you down. Although seen as a bad guy, the enforcer is a vigilante seeking to restore order and impart justice. Here's former referee Ron Asseltine and some of the NHL's finest enforcers defending their roles on the ice. They are having words at the edge of the circle and they drop the mitts right away. The refs have the ultimate control on what not gets called, but there's just some stuff that, that doesn't get called that's not going to that it's up to the enforcer to take care of. If something happens during the game, someone makes a cheap shot or runs your goalie. You know, a blindside hit, an elbow, a slash. The stick in the face, the cross check to the side of the neck, the slew footing where a guy gets his feet knocked out from underneath him and slams his back of his head on the ice. Those are the types of penalties that can result in, in mayhem, you know, and if, especially if they're missed. Because what's going to happen is if the players feel that we're not out there protecting them, then they're going to start to protect themselves. You're accountable no matter what you do. If you're going to sit there and spear someone and think that there's going to be no retribution or you're not going to have to answer the bell, you got another thing coming. I'll take that one guy and just use you know, his whole team as an example and just say, that one guy created this for every single one of you. So now you're all on my radar. Are they going to? And yes, they are. If I can't get you, I'm going to go to your best player and say, I'm going to break your leg because of him. And then they go, really? Really? And when we come back, more on hockey enforcers fighting for a dream. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we're talking about hockey's enforcers here and for anybody who loves the sport well you're loving this and for any of you who don't and just sort of have any casual acquaintance with the sport which I did I went to a few Ranger games when I lived in New York but I always wondered why all the fights and who are these guys well let's return to the storytelling and to Greg Hengler here we are talking about and continuing the story about hockey's enforcers some don't buy the rationale to have enforcers Here's Dr. Charles Tater, neurosurgeon, concussion, and brain injury expert. I, I don't buy it. I, I just don't feel that there's support for that theory. I think that if you follow the rules of the game, 
If the referee is enforcing the rules, if the league is enforcing the rules, you don't need enforcers to be the policemen for the league. The argument just doesn't hold. But sometimes one expert's opinion clashes with reality. Here's criminologist Dr. Victoria Silverwood and enforcer Derek Boogeyman Bugard. Statistics can't really tell you something because there's no control group. You know, there's no way of really analyzing this. But some of the players that I interviewed um, played in various European mainland teams where there's no fighting allowed. And then they've also played in the UK where it's very similar to North American style. They've explained to me that they actually think there's a lot more cheap shots going on in the leagues without an enforcer. You hear about guys, you know, North American players coming back for the summer and they just say it's a whole different game over there where, you know, guys aren't afraid to use their sticks, you know what I mean? Just because they don't, guys don't fight over there. You speak to skilled players perhaps who've played in different teams and will say that they can relax a little bit more when there is an enforcer on the ice. Here's NHL All-Star Brett Hull. I'm just going to tell you right now, Brett Hull would not be the same player uh, that he was without guys like Kelly Chase and Tony Twist having his back. I can tell you that right now. Hockey's a chess game, and Wayne Gretzky was the grandmaster. But without enforcers... He wouldn't have had the head to think four plays ahead. You look at the greats and stuff like that, like even Gretzky, I mean, he had Semenko and he was a madman. Could you imagine taking Semenko, McClellan, and McSorley away from the Oilers? What, what do you think Ray Gretzky would be? What do you think his head would be? Wayne Gretzky was a skinny 18-year-old, 19-year-old coming up, and people thought, even with WHA, he's going to get killed. I believe everyone was in accord that Wayne Gretzky should not be injured by some person uh, that didn't have the same ability as, as he did. A lot of times he'd have his back to you. And if you really wanted to just put him out of the game, it was there. One, I wouldn't do that to a guy. That's just not my personality. And I guess the other one might be that I would have to deal with the likes of, of Dave Semenko, Mark Messier, uh, Kevin McClellan, God knows how many other guys, because every one of the guys would have been, you know, wanting to hurt you. I mean, it wasn't really what I wanted to look forward to every time I played the Edmonton Oilers. Here's Semenko. I think sometimes I get more credit than I deserve for his career, because he was a great, you know, the greatest player that ever played. Not only were they good enough to play on the ice with Wayne Gretzky, they were also good enough that he didn't want to go anywhere without them. So when Wayne Gretzky was traded to the Kings, Marty McSorley was part of the deal. Not because the Kings said, oh, please give us Marty McSorley, but because Wayne Gretzky said, I'm not going anywhere without Marty McSorley. Here's Marty McSorley. If Wayne Gretzky... Nothing was to happen every time somebody hit him clean. People would have been looking to hit him clean three or four times every shift all year long. How is he ever going to stay healthy? If I don't go by the other team's bench and say, fellas, that's enough. That's enough. I'm not putting up with it. Fighting has been a part of the game since its inception. In fact, the first professional hockey game ever ended in a fight. Although the term enforcer didn't come into the league until the 1970s, 
players were protecting players all the way back into the 20s. But the start of the arms race began with Ed Snyder's 1967 expansion team nicknamed the Broad Street Bullies. Broad Street Bullies, the Philadelphia Flyers, were the ones that started this whole thing with intimidation and fighting. Broad Street Bullies were created because of the St. Louis Blues. They had taken advantage of them and and their owner said, this isn't gonna happen anymore. Mr. Snyder, the owner said, you know, if we can't find all these superstars, these great skaters right away, but we can certainly find guys who can beat other guys up. Because I do not want to see a Flyers team intimidated ever again. Teams in those days had, you know, you know, one or two tough guys that could duke it, that could take care of the Flyers had like a seven of them. We'd go into cities and, you know, hot, seriously, headlines. Hide the women and children, here come the animals. I mean, at one point, my mother read, you know, that said Dave Schultz should be kicked out of the league. The league hated him. You know, everybody hated him. The only people that loved him were Philadelphia and, and Ed Snyder. They went out there with that mentality that they were just going to beat the shit out of anyone who stepped on the ice with them. And they did it, and they won. That advantage of that intimidation really helped them. At that time, they could do that and get away with it. What they did was make teams copy it. That sort of dovetailed right into the 80s as well. Like, even in the Wayne Gretzky era, in that high-flying 80s era, I mean, the Ranger-Islander games would take three and a half hours. The Battle of Alberta would take three and a half hours. Do I even need to mention what Montreal and Quebec would do? We would try? Like, of those six teams, probably half the players should have been in prison for what happened on the ice uh, during some of those games. So there was, like, that, that, that uber-violence through the 80s as well. Like anything, it, it, uh, it became a culture developed around it, um, for better and for worse. The evolution of training for enforcers has become much more skill-specific. Once upon a time, you just had to be tough and throw a lot of punches really quickly. Now NHL enforcers are training in boxing, wrestling, judo, jiu-jitsu, and more. Enforcer Scott Parker even adopted medieval workouts into his off-season training. I had some issues with the hands and, you know, I almost had the palm olive hands, like dishwasher's hands, you know, just soft. And I used to wrap my hands with these types of chains and then just go around and just whack trees and just try to beat my knuckles up as much as I possibly could. Then they start callousing it up and then you make them like leather. They can take a lot more abuse when you use them as hammers on people's faces. Recently, the NHL has cracked down dramatically on fighting, and many fans have soured on what they now call an overly regulated game. As predicted, the NHL now resembles the European style of play that results in more injuries. The NHL's top players are paying the price. I watch the game now, and Sidney Crosby has been injured more times from hits and head injuries and knees in one year than Goretzky in a career. And when we come back, the final installment of this fascinating look at this unique game. Again, all this fighting doesn't happen in football. It does not happen in lacrosse, two other fairly violent sports. But in hockey, we're learning enforcers matter, their stories, their lives, the story of hockey. In America, here on Our American Stories continues 
after these messages. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We continue with this story about hockey's enforcers. Who are they? Why are they there? And why do some people think they need to be there? Let's continue with the story. I always compare hockey to life and business. It's very similar. If someone can get away with something in life or business, they're going to get away with it. Same with in hockey. If you penalize a player or even suspend a player, um, you might hurt that person in, in the pocketbook or hurt that person's team. But uh, if you're actually going to hurt the person, it's a way bigger deterrent than those other two things. Some people might not want to hear that, but uh, it is the major, major deterrent, and it's the ultimate deterrent. You can tell me till you're blue in the face that discipline and fining guys is going to work. Well, I already knew what the fine was for running Steve Eiserman in Detroit if I did it. It was Bob Probert and Joe Koser, and I didn't do it. I didn't do it in Edmonton. I didn't run at Wayne Gretzky in L.A. I didn't let guys on my team run at a great player because I was going to be a guy that inevitably was going to pay the price. And that was former NHL enforcer Kelly Chase. As enforcers, the toughest part of fighting is when they're not fighting. The enforcers in hockey have the toughest job in all of sport. The emotional part takes a toll more than the physical part. Going home and, and seeing your kids and having you know a pregame meal and a nap, thinking about this the whole day. I, I couldn't imagine anything harder than you know to, to wonder who you're going to fight or if you're going to have to fight at all. You're a kid, you know, the playground fight all lined up for you after school and you got to wait from lunchtime till 3.30 for that bell to ring. That's how it feels. Right up to the moment of the fight, your heart is beating right through your jersey and the longer you sit, the worse it gets. As soon as you grab on and you're engaged in that fight, all that goes out the window. Everything that you've thought of, everything that's surrounding you, it, it just goes out the window and you don't hear anything. It's the most bizarre thing. I can't really hear anything. Like it's, you know, it's like the silence comes over. I don't think that thought of that fight ever goes away until it happens. And then once it does, you're thinking about the next one. So it's, uh, it's a constant uh, struggle and balancing emotions and, and, and energy the right way. 
it's a lot more emotional and uh, wearing on uh, on that player, on those people, than what people uh, think of it as. The fights also take an emotional toll on family members, the wives especially. Here's Megan Westgarth and husband Kevin. It's scary when you're kind of watching the fight and then you see, you know, the ref immediately kind of over him, motioning for medical staff to come onto the ice. I remember seeing my wife first after and it was basically like, I, like I'm so sorry. Just a feeling to know that I'd gotten beat and to know that, you know, the people that care about me most, like, had to see it. I would definitely say that that was one of the tougher things that being the wife of an enforcer that I've had to go through with him is just watching him go through that. Mark LaFord spent 14 years as an enforcer in the NHL, but after being drafted, it didn't take long for him to regret his role as a tough guy. Once I got to about 20, then I started, then it dawned on me, I, I went, hmm, I'm going to have to, if I do this, I'm going to have to do this for the next 10, 15 years, every single day. It's no life. I'm older now, my career's done, so I can actually tell the truth. I've never met a guy who's ever liked to fight. If you, uh, if you get a chance, go to some NHL teams and sit down alone, and uh, if they're anonymous, they'll tell you the truth. But if they know their names are going to be used, they can't say they, they hate fighting, they'll lose their jobs. But I've never met a guy one-on-one when uh, the game wasn't around that enjoyed fighting. The enforcer stereotype is that they're goons. This guy is a goon. If you haven't seen the movie, you don't have to bother. This is a goon. It's Scott Parker with that goatee, Steve Conroy. It looks like he's just been released on a weekend furlough. <laughs> looks like he could own a Harley and a leather jacket and everything else. Calling a hockey player a goon implies that the player has no ability to think or put the puck in the net. Behavior expert Howard Bloom strongly disagrees. Is there a virtue that's overlooked by those who look at hockey? You bet. But you don't know it until you step into the dressing room and interview one of these guys. You think that this guy is a monster. You think he has no compunctions about breaking arms, breaking legs, smashing out teeth. You think he's merciless, that that he should be exterminated. He's a cockroach in the game. And then you sit down with him and discover that he has the most magnificent set of ethics and morals you have ever seen in your life. In pursuing the question of the enforcer, you're pursuing the question of what it is to be human. What does the enforcer call on? Profound loyalty. Loyalty so deep that he's willing to risk his own structure, his own body, his own bones, his own teeth, his own brain. On behalf of protecting people he deeply loves, the enforcer is the most ethical and moral member of the tribe because he is willing to undergo such incredible sacrifice. That's looking at it from the inside of the group. Looking at it from the outside of the group, the enforcer is the ultimate enemy, the super bad guy, and must be eliminated. But that's because you and I are looking at it from the point of view of another group. If we were looking at it from within the group that the enforcer defends, we would love the enforcer because the enforcer loves every single one of us so much. He is willing to give his life for us. And within the DNA of an enforcer's moral compass lies what is called the code. The code is the fighter's etiquette. Here's what it sounds like before fighting NHL heavyweight champ enforcer. And, as you will hear, 
all-around nice guy, George LaRock. You want to? Okay. Squirrel? Okay, good luck, man. Let's go, he says. That's unbelievable. Hockey's a strange mixture of grace and disgrace, depending on your morals and ethics. That is where the code comes in to protect and serve no matter what. The code is an unwritten set of rules, the Bible of hockey sportsmanship, if you will, that has been handed down from generation to generation. How does etiquette come out of the chaos of hockey. It's got to sound so odd and just crazy to be so civil when you're, you know, being so violent. The first one that comes to mind is that, you know, when a player goes down to the ice, you try not to punch their head through the ice. You never jumped somebody from behind. You never sucker punched anybody. No biting, no eye gouging, uh, simple things like that. If you know the opponent's uh, injured where he can't fight, out of respect, you just kind of like let him be. Or if that guy had just gotten called up, instead of coming up and whacking you, spearing you, says, hey, you know, if I don't do it tonight, then I'm going to get sent down. And you're like, I got you, kid. There's many a times that uh, a, a heavyweight would come over and say, we're going to go now. And I'd say, how about the start of next period? I, I'm just at the end of the shift. I'm done. And you're the biggest guy on the team right now, and I'd rather be ready. So we'll be fighting in the second period, not right now. Okay, sounds good. Sometimes even before the lines are getting, you're tapping each other on the back and saying good fight, and you skate off. And there's been an, a number of times where I've, you know, got punched in the face, punched people in the face, and later that night have been had a beer with them. It's almost like two warriors sort of looking, looking back at their careers and saying, hey, you know what, we made it out the other side, and forever they'll have this sort of unspoken bond. The bond that enforcers share is deep and is consistent throughout generations of hockey players. The old school enforcers like Dave the Hammer Schultz to recent guys like Brian McGratton and Scott Parker. Although they may agree with Mark LaForge that they did not like to fight, the privilege of playing in the NHL and being able to fulfill that childhood dream was worth the affliction. If someone told me, if you go out and you fight 200 plus times and you're going to be beat up, your shoulders are going to be surgically repaired, you're going to break your nose, your knuckles, but in the end of the day, you're going to play a game in the NHL. Easy. Wouldn't do it any other way. I wouldn't change a thing. I got to play in the NHL for 10 years. And that's pretty cool for me. If I could turn back time, I'd put skates on right now and go. I, I, I'd do it. I'd loved it. If you could, would you do it all over again? Oh. <sighs> With a little more fire. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And that's what we try and do here, take you everywhere that you can't get to yourself. And uh, 
A little bit more of an explanation of why there's so much fighting in hockey. There's less now than there used to be. More rules, more enforcement. We wanted to hear from the fighters themselves. Out of the way, unvarnished, our opinions out of it. No one really cares about our opinions anyway. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. These Enforcer Stories. And this is Our American Stories. Our next story comes from Christy Stone Hamrick and her piece in Life Set about something we all think about and all probably think we don't do enough of. Exercise. Here's her unique take. Yeah! Oh, hello. I'm White Goodman, owner, operator, and founder of Globo Gym America Corp. And I'm here to tell you that you don't have to be stuck with what you got. Hey, Rory. Looking good. Here at Globo Gym, we understand that ugliness and fatness are genetic disorders, much like baldness or necrophilia. And it's only your fault if you don't hate yourself enough to do something about it. And that's where we come in. <laughs> So, Americans are fat. At least that's the running monologue playing out in more media outlets than we can completely ignore. Get in my belly! Come on! But somewhere along the journey from childhood to retirement, the solution to that problem has become the New Year's resolution that almost everyone makes and almost everyone hates. Exercise more. As children playing outside was the reward, not the punishment. Now you're all in big big trouble. So much so that a ridiculous trend in too many elementary schools today is for children to be deprived of outside playtime in a stationary timeout at recess as punishment. Work, 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 everyone. Because we all know that the one thing that helps discipline a hyperactive child to be calm is enforced stillness. Go stand in the corner. Or not. Yet trudging through the institutional world of education, Exercise became the thing that the quintessential sadistic gym teacher enforced. Those that can't do, teach. And those that can't teach, teach gym. Right there! Complete with tests, metrics, and goals for the unattainable. The joy of movement dimmed as the realization that perfection was just not on the menu for most of us grew. And there was the math to prove it. Charts, indexes, measurements, graphs, all calculated to show the weary where they fall short. Exercise stopped being many people's entertainment when it stopped being fun. I can't be the only person who finds modern day conversations about exercise about as compelling as a marketing report full of deliverables and metrics, or like a performance review by a cranky boss who won't notice the 10 things you did right, but only the one thing you did wrong. Here we are, look, this is fitness. These things are correlates, maybe components, but absolutely positively subordinate to what happens here. You with me? 
I already live in a world of deadlines and demands. Whether at home or at work, I must comply with so many requirements that I cannot bear to take up an activity that has a to-do list. Monica, it's Sunday morning. I'm not running on a Sunday. Why not? Because it's Sunday. <laughs> it's God's day. Hey, you say stop, and we stop. <laughs> okay. Stop. In fact, a working paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research reported that even when people were paid to go to the gym, most were not motivated to do so. No, come on, we can't stop. Come on, we got three more pounds to go. I am the energy train and you are on board. Woo-woo! 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 I'll say that line again. Most were not motivated to do it. Money could not camouflage the reality that many have lost that love and feeling for organized pain. You know, I try to stay positive. So you... You feel like going for a run? Because, you know, you don't have to. If you want, you could just take a nap right here. Okay. And when the sales pitch is no pain, no gain, how surprising is it that many people just say no? Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God! As my own children reach adulthood, I listen to their conversations about how they should exercise, if only they had the time. Should stands doomed in the English language, a verbal storeroom for closets we don't want to clean or vegetables we don't want to eat. Uh, you know, we really should quit. Okay, let's quit. Yes, great! <laughs> as soon as you should do something, you don't want to do it. Hey! Hey! Uh-oh, busted. <laughs> Rachel, we tried to quit, but it was too hard. In today's competitive school environments, the emphasis can be so much on winning that coaches don't want to spend time with kids in general, but rather a specific few. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? So they call every team to now, the top players. If a coach would have put me in fourth quarter, we'd have been state champions, no doubt. No doubt in my mind. Forgotten is the beautiful model of days past, called my childhood, in which every kid could come out to practice and to participate with the team. Hey, little buddy, hold up, man. While only a deserving and talented few suited up on game day. Don't you understand, man? If you don't cool it out there, you're going to end up getting yourself killed. If I cool it, I won't be helping you guys get ready for the next week's games. Got it? The team was bigger than the perfect, and the fun of training together was its own reward. If you need a reminder of that, watch the movie Rudy with a box of tissues. You ready, champ? I'm ready for this my whole life. I am a proud member of the track B team and will probably live longer for it. The A team intensified their performances and ran until they were sick in the grass, striving for excellence, admirable to be sure. But on the B team, we jogged on the track, rarely so intensely that we couldn't keep the conversation running, and got out of school on the day of the meets to run a few races and cheer on the winners. Staying in shape in the context of community was the draw. Recently, I've rediscovered running, which for me means faster than walking, at a pace most likely to be the worst in any timed race. I don't want to train for anything, achieve anything, or set a record. What I like best about running is that I'm not working. I wonder if more people would overlook the fact that they're exercising if they could remember that it used to be fun outside. 
It feels a bit un-American to tell people don't go for the gold, but I suspect that more people would try getting active if it sounded less like work and a lot more like a reward. You want to play me? Outside, you get a break from work, chores, family, computers, and responsibilities. Take a page from your five-year-old self and have a moment of fun where the sun is shining. And don't let the fact that some will label your activity exercise ruin it. And that's Christy Stone Hamrick's story about exercise here on Our American Stories. And great job as always on that one, Greg. is our american stories and we love our american dreamer series we brought you a lot of them stories of entrepreneurs who've overcome really difficult odds to create companies create jobs create a tax base it's the american dream folks getting out there and starting something whether you're steve jobs or whether you've got the local auto body shop and you're employing some people and doing what you love a restaurant whatever and as always our american dreamer series are brought to us by the great folks at job creators network who are out there fighting for public policies that make sense for helping small business owners grow their businesses into bigger ones. And today's story, like so many of them, is a real stem winder because growing a business is no duck walk. And they face mortal, mortal moments where they think everything's lost. We think they're as good as police procedurals, these stories. And our own Alex Cortez brings us today's story on a member of the Job Creators Network, Bob Luddy, the founder of Captivare, the nation's leading manufacturer of commercial kitchen ventilation systems. And this story is a real stem winder. If you think about people that come into the company today, they see a very prosperous company. That's all they know about the company. If you go back to the early days, you'd have a, quite a different picture and that every day was, can we survive one more day? That was the mission every single day. In the early 80s, we were in somewhat of a recession. We switched our payroll to monthly. I thought if we paid at the end of the month, surely we would be able to collect enough money during the month where payroll will not be an issue. Well, it turned out it was a big issue June 30th, 1980, because we had a $30,000 payroll with $2,000 in the bank. I even think back and I wonder how I finessed this. Basically, I told the employees, which was about 18 in number, that we were not able to make our payroll today for technical reasons. That's all I told them. And they mostly went along with it. They really didn't cause a lot of grief about it. So Monday went by, no money, and then Tuesday night, I had already received the mail. I decided to go back to the post office at 8 p.m. And there was a check for $28,000 from the Golden Corral, almost precisely to the dollar what I needed to make that payroll. So essentially, I was bailed out by a major customer who, in this case, paid their bill early. Go figure. 
it speaks very highly of your employees that they didn't really ask what the technical reason was. I, I'm pretty sure my wife would have uh, asked, yeah. what, do you, what do you mean a technical reason? Like, <laughs> you earn that money and I have bills to pay here. Didn't you ask him what the technical reason was? You know, in a modern context, I can't even imagine that I could get away with that. I mean, people would be crazy. But somehow we did. Bob writes in his book, I'd done everything humanly possible to save the company. So now all that remained was the grace of God. I mean, I have a great trust in God that if we do our part and we ask for help, he will provide that help. And I think if I didn't have that belief in God, it would be a lot harder to function in the marketplace. One of the things I think you find very interesting in the market is that these companies that are Christian-based, Chick-fil-A is maybe a primary example, they're enormously successful in the market. People admire them, and people want to do business with them. In our construction business, a lot of things go on that shouldn't go on, and we've never participated in them. One of our veteran sales guys called me one day and said, Bob, I figured out why we're so successful. I said, well, tell me why. He says, because we're a legitimate company. We do things honestly, correctly. We don't play games. And the marketplace appreciates the way we do business. I went, hallelujah. And if you think about today, the trouble individuals get into because they violate human decency, basic Ten Commandments, common law, is enormous. Conversely, the ones who are legitimate just continue to do better and better all the time because that's what the market wants. That's who they're going to do business with. Lessons that Bob began learning not too long after coming out of the womb. His Pennsylvania family didn't have much money and had 10 mouths to feed. It was competitive even in eating because we had a limited amount of food. So you better be at the table and get your share or you may end up short of food that day. So to get money, Bob had to make his own. Starting in elementary school, he delivered newspapers, shoveled snow, and babysat. And at age 11, he was working on a bread truck on weekends. Eventually worked in the drugstore during high school. The pharmacist was my mentor teaching me the basic skills of business, uh, retail, inventory, delivery, dealing with customers who are difficult. Uh, it's almost as if I should have been paying him. This idea of first job is much more important in terms of learning life skills than actually making any money. And yet it's been turned around now that you should be paid a minimum of $15 an hour. Well. I don't know what 85 cents an hour would be today, maybe 10 bucks. Actually, it would be even less, $7.15. If minimum wage were $15, I never got that job. It would have made a profound, profoundly negative impact on my life. So I think that very, very often in modern contexts, whether it's the news media, consultants, academics, they really turn life upside down. And if you think about it, when I grew up in the 50s, life was a little different, a little bit less regulated. You couldn't work on a bread truck today at age 11. They put mom in jail for child abuse. 
but it was an important part of my life. Nobody got hurt. Everybody seemed to be a winner. So allowing parents to make decisions and allowing individuals to find the best that they can within the market they exist is important. And it's precluded now by massive regulation, misconceptions, etc. Bob went on to college, and he didn't particularly want to. He didn't like school. But his dad wanted all the kids to go, so that's what he did. And after two years, he really wanted to get out. So this 20-year-old decided that buying into a fiberglass business was what he ought to do to stay sane. Fast forward nine years, by this time, Bob had been drafted into the Vietnam War, forced to sell his company to serve, and now was married and working in L.A. until he just couldn't stand the traffic any longer. And so he researched the areas of the country most likely to grow economically, and they'd move to one of them. And he chose Raleigh, North Carolina. It was a leap. I had no contacts, no job, didn't know anybody. When I got here, I thought, maybe this wasn't the smartest idea in the world. Bob applied to every single job that was listed in the newspaper. And after two months of this, someone finally called and offered him an opportunity to sell fire suppression systems to restaurants. He did well, purchased their first home, and had his first kid until the CEO made a Sunday announcement to the sales team. Our pay was going to get cut about one-third. So I was making 30000 a year. Now I'm going to make 20000 a year. And my initial thought was, I ought to be able to make 20000 a year on my own. Starting his own similar business. The second thought was, I'm not well prepared. I don't have capital. I should have been more prepared for this day, but I'm, I'm not. And then I had a third thought, essentially said, look, there's times in your life when you have to take major risks, and this is one of those times. And if you fail to take that risk, other opportunities may come along, but this is your time to go. I think one of the things that came out of that is the fact that knowing that the, the risks were extremely high, I knew I'd have to go to all extreme possible efforts to make this thing work. I decided to use my home phone so I didn't have to do anything there. I got some business cards printed, and by Saturday, I made my first installation. So from Sunday, working for a company, to the following, the end of the week, I went from being employed to being self-employed. The nature of how I learned to do things, particularly for my mother, is She called it, tomorrow never comes, meaning that if you're not doing it today, you're probably never going to do it, even today. I do it today, I do it immediately. If it's a good idea, I want to hear about it now, versus the bureaucratic mind that says, yeah, we're going to do that, I'll put on my list, I'll contemplate it. I'm much more of a person of action. And so that action allowed us to get underway right away. And the first check I received from the Saturday installation bounced. And when we come back, more of this American Dreamer's story, Bob Luddy's story, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American Dreamers segment. Bob Luddy and the founder of Captive Air, the nation's leading manufacturer of commercial kitchen ventilation systems. And by the way, we heard some really remarkable stories about how we almost didn't make it. Well, we continue now with the story. He's already shaken up one industry, and a few unintentional experiences would lead him to try and shake up another. I had a woman who worked part-time taking care of my children after school, and she needed some more work, so I told her to come over to the office. We didn't really know what to do with her, so we, I said, well, have her do filing. So someone came to me and said, well, she's not able to do filing. And I said, no, come on, anybody can do filing. Just show her how to do it, she'll be fine. And what we figured out is she didn't know her ABCs. So that was my first inkling that I was clueless. Later on in our shop, we realized that individuals could use a tape measure if it was increments of one inch. But if it was one inch and one sixteenth, they couldn't read it conceptually. They didn't understand it. And I thought, how is it possible that someone could graduate from high school, but they couldn't do fractions? They didn't understand fractions. That was my second clue. And I thought, as a society, this is a disgrace. Because we always say that we love our children, we want the best for them, we want them to have good education. But we support a public school system that only really educates about 25% of the students and culturally destroys close to 100% of them. So Bob decided to do something about it. First, he took up North Carolina's Education Commission on becoming their co-chairman. My take-home was that academics will discuss any topic ad nauseum, but they have no intention of really changing. They just like academic discussions. So at some point that came to an end without any great success. And so Bob decided to try something else. In 1997, I ran for school board as a reform candidate. I won the first round, but in the second round, narrowly lost, which turned out to be a great blessing. And I decided to open a public charter school. Charter schools are public schools that are allowed more freedom to innovate. In the first weeks when I announced that we were going to have Franklin Academy, one of the local school board members came to me with me and he said, well, I want to inform you that nobody's going to go to your school except a few malcontents and misfits, and there'll be darn few of those. But we opened with 160 kids. Even better, the students liked it. They loved coming to school. So as we went forward, our waiting list began to grow. The state law requires that you have a lottery for admission. A game of chance where students are chosen at random. In year two, we began the lottery, and it grew to over 2,000 students. There are four kids on the waiting list for every one seat that is available, which means that only 25% of them will win the lottery, and 75% of them will be declared losers. Losers who are forced to go to some other school 
that they don't want to go to. I think it's just a luster of, of tremendous pent-up demand. In business, we would call it a very strong market signal. That almost, more than any other point, describes the extreme frustration and dissatisfaction with the public school system. Bob, being Bob, hoped to serve these kids that the lottery declared losers by opening more charter schools so that no child would be left behind. But the government wouldn't allow him to. The charter school bill only allowed for 100 charters. By the mid-2005, all 100 were out. You couldn't get more charters. So yet again, Bob tried something else that once again in no way benefited his family. So I met with a small group of parents in 06, talked about the idea of a private school. So by 07, I opened Thales Academy with 20 kids in our corporate office. It's now grown to 2,600 students, six campuses, and we have five campuses currently under development. And my goal was to create a large private school network that would prove there is a better way. Our theme is high quality, affordable, which essentially in the private school world doesn't exist. So we picked $5,000 for K-5 as a tuition 10 years ago. We have not raised that tuition in 10 years. For context, Washington, D.C.'s public schools cost $30,000 a kid. Many top private schools are $20,000 a student. North Carolina's public schools are $9,300 a student. And Bob's Thales Academy is almost half that. Now, from a financial management standpoint, it's a formidable task. You have all these myths of small class size. When I went to high school, there was... 50-plus students in every class. It was a pretty darn good high school. So I know from firsthand experience that having 50 kids in a classroom doesn't make a darn bit of difference. Those same students, when they go to college, might be in a class of 100 or 200 or 300. Nobody's concerned about it. So the concept of small class basically is a union idea to create more jobs and make life easier on the teachers. So one of the things we have to do is have a reasonable class size, which we describe between 20 and maybe 30 at the outside. We have to eliminate every potential inefficiency. So in a K-5 building, we have an administrator and an assistant administrator, and everybody else is teaching. That allows for tremendous efficiencies. Whereas in public schools, For every single teacher that they have, there's a whole other employee not teaching. Only half of their staff are actually teaching. And to conclude, I had to ask Bob, why is he still running this company and launching schools at his age? The guy's in his 70s, and he's had this wildly successful career. Shouldn't he be on a golf course somewhere? You know, for for many individuals who go into business, they aspire to get rich, retire, and enjoy the money. Obviously, I want to make money 
But the things that money produces, mostly I'm not interested. So I'm not a sportsman. I don't care to, to go on exotic vacations. I actually love the work. I love building the business. The money is not all that important to me, even though it is a way you keep score for any business. Uh, one of my uh, associates some years ago said, you have more money to spend than anybody we know, and you spend the least amount of anybody we know. And, and the reason is that money isn't my goal. My goal is to create a great company, to have the opportunity to work with amazing people. That, to me, is my life. Going on an exotic vacation has no interest to me whatsoever. Having some exotic sports car has no interest. I believe that as your life goes on, I'm 72, your greatest contributions are coming later in life because you have this tremendous amount of experience. You've got a whole company behind you that you didn't have all those years. So the opportunity to serve is enormous in that time frame. To put yourself off the playing field, for me, doesn't make sense. And what a story. And we've heard this story again and again from our American dreamers, from our entrepreneurs. It's not the money. It's a scorecard. But it's the jobs. It's the company culture. It's the meaning that work brings to people's lives. Our American Dreamer segment brought to us by Job Creators Network. Bob Luddy's story. Captive Air's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for another story of a song, one of our favorite segments here on Our American Stories. And this one features two musicians who were reputed to be seeking perfection. But as guitarist Dean Parks said, quote, perfection is not what they were after. They're after something that you wanted to listen to over and over again. Let's take a listen to what Greg Hengler has for us today. They were hipsters before the term was coined, which would make them the real deal. It's widely considered that over-engineering a track ultimately ends in failure. Not here. In an age before Pro Tools, Steely Dan engineered some of the best analog production ever. So exacting, so tight, their style was a sophisticated and seamless fusion of jazz and pop music. Their style became known as Yacht Rock, and Steely Dan docked a fleet of remarkable hits. The band consisted of just two core members. Donald Fagan grew up in Passaic, New Jersey, just a 20-minute drive to New York City through the Lincoln Tunnel, and Walter Becker, who grew up in Queens. Here's Walter Becker. Your everlasting summer, you can see it fading fast. So you grab a piece of something that you think is going to last. The original Steely Dan band was formed in 1971. There were five of us, and Donald and I wrote the songs. Are you reeling in the east? Stowing away the time? Are you gathering up the tea? 
toured for a while to support the first couple of albums, but we didn't really like it, so we stopped in 1974 and didn't tour again for 19 years. By the time uh, we released Asia, the other members of the band uh, were gone, except for Denny Dias. And uh, we had replaced them with session musicians and some of our favorite soloists. Here's Donald Fagan, Walter Becker, and fellow session contributors for the Asia album providing a fascinating glimpse into one of those recordings, Peg, on track four. Drummer Rick Morata recounts what many consider one of the greatest drum groups ever recorded. I feel nothing but pride from that track. It was one of the best tracks I ever played on. As far as drums were going at that time, it was like if you had a club in your right hand and a club in your left hand and clubs for feet, you could uh, play. I had just opened my hi-hat a hair every couple of beats with what I was playing with my right hand on the hi-hat, and it created this little sound. Now, I've done that, but never ever heard it on the record that I had done, because engineers and sounds at the time, you know, it was, it was one of those things where it's a nuance, and those things didn't exist. Here's Fagan and Becker in the studio playing with the soundboard while admiring the sneaky bass stylings of Chuck Rainey. As I remember, this was kind of a written bass part, but he fixed it up in his own... Parts of it were written. Right. This part was written. Mm. This verse part. Just a great musician slapping and also fretting with his thumb. Chuck had a really unique... Here's the chorus, which was... A... You'd have to ask Chuck about the thumb business, you know. They didn't want me to slap, I think mainly because at that time, slapping was just becoming popular and it was on a lot of records. However, my me being a player, I think there are some songs that slapping sounds good. And no matter who you are, you want to keep in the fold of what's happening. Uh, Peg, uh, uh, that bridge there just seemed to be a slapping thing for me. They said, well, no, play with your fingers, uh, you know, something like that. And then... You play these songs so many times that after a while, I remember just turning just a little bit, either this way or this way, and putting up a uh, partition. And uh, they were about that high. And of course, sitting in a much lower chair. And uh, I remember, you know, slapping. They never knew it went down. They never knew it. Except afterwards, you can tell there was a difference in that bridge. I'll put in the keyboards again here so you got like here's your little rhythm section little uh, trio here it's Rick Murata, it's, I'll, I'll tell you one thing that's interesting that, that I'm listening to now is that you don't really hear in a, in a lot of groups that you hear there's a lot of doubling between the uh, bass and the kick drum and you can hear here that the, the kick drum is all sort of syncopated it's not really you know what I mean? It's not doubling so much the strong beats that the bass is playing. He 
gotta love them. But it's not like you go in there and you're just really good friends and you'll play and you'll try to get into it and they'll say, yeah, that's really good. And then the next day somebody else is doing it, a whole other band. It wasn't like they played musical chairs with the guys in the band. They played musical bands. A whole band would go and a whole incredible other band would come in. We never came up with a band of our own that we felt was the right combination of guys, that it was stable. It was just me and Walter. You hear somebody in a record and you say, wow, listen to this, this guy's a great solo, so let's have him come in and, you know, what would he be good on, you know? What would suit his style, you know? That's the fun. This tune, I think, is infamous among studio players in that we hired a couple of guitar players, you know, to play the solo, and, and it wasn't quite what we were looking for. Uh, so mm -hmm. we got through three or four, five players. Six, six, six players, or seven, six you or know. Six or seven, eight players. Something else soloed or, oh, there it is. Let's check this out. Put it, go back, and let's hear it in the track. Probably the, the the last guy to try it before Jay did it. Here's another one. And what is that? Some kind of little envelope filter thing he's got going there on his guitar? Didn't you hate if someone did this to you? And then finally, um, Jay Graydon came in and did it with no um, difficulty whatsoever. Yeah, it's kind of, kind of a Polynesian. Sort of prefigured my own later resonance in Hawaii. Here's the great Michael McDonald. all in 3D. I had worked with them enough to kind of know what I was in for, you know. <laughs> certain words that they just wanted to hear a certain way that. You know, normally under normal normal circumstances, people wouldn't. You know, they kind of. This is the words you hear the parts. Uh, you sing it, and you know uh, that's the phrasing. But for those guys, uh, phrasing could have such nuance. You know that. Uh, you know, singing a line like half as much as. You'd think, oh, you know, how many different ways can you say it in that phrasing rhythmically, and you know. But it would be, it would come down to such fine points like uh, pronunciation and uh, exact rhythmic, you know, uh, vibrato, no vibrato, you know, uh, things like that. And so it was always real challenging. He did a couple parts on, on top of himself. All in 3D, foreign movie. Let's check out his high part just to embarrass him. Cool. Back to you. Sorry, Mike. There it is. Total ears, too. 
all in 3D for a movie. Peg, back to you. Peg doesn't sound like much of a part, but the harmonies were so close that um, that was a, a real learning experience for me to sing a chord, you know, part by part with myself. That, you know, when you're going back into to sing that next harmony, it's so close to the note you're singing it. It was just uh, real hard for me to discern that interval and, and keep it in pitch, you know. We had a pretty specific idea about this, uh, how these background parts would work and the sort of swing band rhythmic approach and how we wanted it phrased and so on. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And what a story. And so many different ways songs come to be. Some it's spontaneous. Some, my goodness, over and over again. Laborious. Fastidious. And that's Steely Dan, the ultimate studio band. The story of a song, Peg, and how it came to be here on Our American Stories. You see- 